Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got Richard Hayward with me. Now, Richard is a very experienced CFO, and these days he's doing charity work combined with some mentoring. So, hello, Richard. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. That's a pleasure. Richard, tell me a little bit about your background. Where did this this great journey all start? So, I started down the accountancy road when I was 18. I was going to go to university, but sadly, my father had just died, and therefore it was best that I went straight to work. And I found a job with a a company that allowed me to have day release. So effectively, I was working for four days a week with one day off at college, which meant that my studies and my work life were much more life-work balance. Uh, So I stayed there for a couple of years and I pursued the Association of Certified Accountants. But in those days, if you didn't have a degree, you had to do a two-year foundation course and then you joined on to the last three years where uh, the people with degrees started. Yeah, which which is the same as when I qualified as as an ACA. I think with all these... There are advantages and disadvantages. What I think I got from it was A, two years experience, B, but it suited me. And then as I passed the exams, they started to call you part qualified. I moved to a manufacturing company where I learned standard costing, variance analysis. I learned how to interpret data, put together plans and start to manage people. Then I moved on to another manufacturing company, but this was a a much more difficult situation. This was when the development of compact discs had actually just made it to the market. And I worked for a company that produced music cassettes and vinyl records. So market about to disappear. (laughs) Well, uh, funny enough, vinyl records have made a a comeback in a niche market. But effectively, what was happening was the market was declining. And in the short to medium term, compact discs would replace the vinyl and the music cassette. So the company that I worked for said, OK, we have six manufacturing plants in Europe. And we know that we're going to go down to zero over anywhere between probably two and seven years. So therefore, the companies that can achieve the lowest unit cost will be the companies that last the longest. So therefore, there was a very clear goal between the management of the company and the workers of the company, which was very unionized, the most unionized I have ever ever worked in. And therefore, it was a common goal. Now, what often happens in in large organizations is the goals of the company tend not to align to the goals of the worker unless certain things are done to make sure that the benefits of the company are shared amongst all them. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But what this did was, A, it meant you had a goal, 
B was very easily measured. And C, by going through everything almost from a bottom-up approach, you could see how whatever you did influence that unit cost. Mm, yes. So, for example, there's a normal things, there's staffing levels, there's wage control, but there's also looking at all the processes end-to-end, looking at the supply of the raw materials, looking at the supply of the third-party goods and services. All these things, when put together and, and managed within a very detailed cost control system with, again, standard costs. So, for example, you would have the cost of manufacturing a seven-inch single, the cost of manufacturing a 12-inch single or an LP. I don't know if you remember all these words. So you had to stand. I remember them. I've got a loft full of them. <laughs> and I don't have anything to play with, play them on anymore. Maybe that's what we should have sold. Um, and also the, the whole end-to-end of what was going together was open to question. Nothing was sacred. So we did things like bringing in and taking on third-party business. So whereas before, the only business you would undertake would be group business from all of the record labels that were owned by that company, but we would take individual record labels, and if they had a hit, we would manufacture those records for them on a, not on a standard cost basis, because it wouldn't be competitive, but on a marginal cost basis. So we were doing third-party pricing to fill up the capacity to lower the unit cost. A, it was fun. B, you learned a lot of how people interact under stress. C, managing the relationship between what we were going to do with the unions, so the people that are actually doing the work, and aligning that to our objective to be one of the, or to be the last of the six, was a set of skills that, as a young accountant, obviously I'd never uh, really tested. So how do you manage conflict? How open can you be? What's the best way of convincing a group of people who think what you're trying to do is the wrong thing? Because eventually you're going to get rid of workers because sometimes it's cheaper and more efficient to outsource pieces of the jigsaw than it is to, you know, is to keep it uh, in-house. So you learn a lot of skills, but against that, when every year came to pass and you were still one of the six, one of the five, one of the four, how great was that? I mean, that is success, that, that, Absolutely. success yeah. that you can measure, not only on a, on a CV, but that's a pub story. That's an after-dinner story. That's a story Absolutely. that makes you feel... And that's, a, that's, a, that's a very different experience to a, a lot of up-and-coming finance leaders these days who, and a lot of our gross CFO members are, are in the opposite of that. They're in small, very fast-growing organizations where the objectives are to, to grow the business as quickly as possible, to go find funding and so on. But that experience of saying, how do we survive? And doing some real, what I'd call, managing by the seat of your pants is, is something very, very different. I know, I know that I had some experiences that about 10 years ago, did a, a finance transformation exercise on two coal-fired power stations. Now, we all know that there's no coal-fired power stations around anymore. And those two had 
the big hairy audacious goal of being the last plant standing. So there's the same same thing, heavily unionized, lots of folk in in blue overalls keeping the place going, who were also the main subject of our financial transformation because they were the people spending all the money. It does open up a very different set of skills. So how have the skills that you developed back then, Richard, come to bear in the in the later part of your career? So I did that for a number of years and they were on a path and, and, and we were still on the on the list of the companies that, that were operating. What I also did was I realized at that time that my goal was to become a CFO. And one of the things that I looked at was documents that said the set of skills that you would need to be a CFO. And one of the biggest skills I, I, I couldn't tick off uh, was M&A. So the understanding of what, what value is, the understanding of how you pull that value into the organization, how you buy, how you sell, the mechanics of that. And one day, and, and this is where there's always a part played by luck itself, I was uh, communicated to by a headhunter and interviewed for a job in a company that was about to buy itself out from its parent company, which was listed, and go through an IPO. And that was in the leisure industry. And this company was made up of bingo halls, nightclubs, and restaurants. So that job, of which a part of it was to grow through the branding of acquisitions. So they had a number of types of nightclub would be determined by where they were, what type of people would frequent them, their spending power, etc. And to take the successful nightclub, buy a nightclub, and then put that brand onto that nightclub. So one of the great problems with M&A is often you can't put your hands around what you're buying or what yeah. you're selling. And therefore, to dis- disentangle this part of the organization and sell it is not as simple as it seems. Whereas if it's a standalone unit, you can see the finances that it's performing at now. You know how the branded units perform. And you can actually take the branded unit, put it on top, compare the price that you're paying based on these the stats that you know in the other 90 nightclubs work, get a valuation. The movement of it is relatively easy, again, because it's standalone. So there's some you know, development, rebranding, which tends to be infrastructure costs. Yep. But actually, the way you're running that nightclub and the sessions you're running that nightclub for, so whether it's, I don't know, soul or it's punk or it's pop, you've got the experience of the other nightclubs to understand how this nightclub is likely to perform with little or no risk. So the M&A, structurally, I did a lot of small units, but you actually learn as much about M&A doing small units where you can see the value, and as it comes through, you can tick the value off, allows you then when you move on to doing much bigger M&A, you actually know the things you're looking for, even though it's much more difficult 
to put your arms around it and find them. Yeah. So, Richard, you, you said getting getting into that role and doing that sort of thing was was a lot by luck of being approached by a headhunter, but you're stepping out of a two or three manufacturing roles into something that's not a manufacturing industry. You're stepping out of something that's been fairly heavily costing influenced, stepping into something that's about mergers and acquisitions that you don't have any experience in. How do you secure the role? So I think <laughs> I think partly when someone asks you to do something, and I remember being at the interview and, and the the managing director, as he was then called, said to me, Why should we employ you? And I said, I assume you've already answered that question because you approached me and you laughed and the interview sort of changed in a way and from him looking at me to convince him (laughs) that I wanted the job, which I was interested in for the reasons that we've spoken about, to him showing me why I should want the job. Now, that's an interesting approach. You know, the way I've always looked at it is when I, not so much later in your career, because I think you're looking for circumstance where you feel you can add most value. But at the beginning of the career, I took the stance that said for every job, I would take 70% of my skill set with me. I expected people to help me in areas where I had no experience or not so much experience of 30%, which then helped me attain my goal of saying, hey, I can tick off all these things in the CFO to-do list. Yeah. And therefore, when I start applying for CFO jobs or I'm promoted within an organization to a CFO uh, type job, then it's getting me to where I want to go. But it's also helping an organization grow or take out costs so they can survive. Yeah. I love that attitude, Richard, that that's saying, well, yeah, I've got these skills that would really benefit the job. but no. I'm lifelong learning here. I want to learn some more. I want to get something for myself out of this. But one thing I question you there, Richard, is when you made your move into your very first CFO role, did that 70-30 hold true? Or was it more like 50-50? I think what you actually bring in core skills probably, I think personally, moves from the 70 to the 80. What they can never teach you is how to manage large groups of people. They can teach you the debits and the credits. They can teach you of what value is. They can teach you about risk mitigation. I mean, that's they're hard skills. Yeah, you can learn hard skills. I think what good CFOs do is they develop soft skills that support the hard skills. If I look at the CFOs that I've admired, I always think they do the soft side very well. And you assume they do the hard side well because that's their core skill. Yeah. There's there's something that when we're talking to an awful lot of new CFOs, folks that are turning up on and saying, help, can you mentor me, please? There's It's because, yeah, they do those hard skills well. But moving into the CFO role, well, they've got number two doing most of those hard skills. And they've got a step further away from their comfort zone than would be normal in stepping up the the finance ladder before that. 
Now, I can see the 70-30 all the time building on it, but I just wonder as you go into this first CFO role, whether because I kind of always talk about as being moving from being the inward face of finance to the outward face of finance, you know, suddenly you're you're talking to the rest of the C-suite, you're talking to the customers, you're talking to the suppliers, you're talking to the investors, you're trying to be co-pilot of the CEO. You're doing an awful lot of stuff that's much more around soft skills and the hard skills of what the numbers are. Well, your number two is giving you a piece of paper with those on. You're not working them out yourself anymore. I agree. All I would say is that the underlying skill that you're pushing through the organization is the core skill that you've learned over those years of becoming the CFO. So I am under the Myers-Briggs classification, an ENFP, which apparently is quite unusual for a CFO. I'm more extrovert, and I think one of the things that's more difficult to learn are the soft skills and hard skills. So I like the uh, town halls. I actually like the investor meetings as long as I know I'm well prepared because, again, the stress goes down as the preparation goes up. Yeah. And there's no substitute for pouring over all those numbers and second-guessing all those questions. And what you tend to find is the first investor session, if you can answer 90% of the questions, that goes up to 100 as you wander through the week. Yes. Hey, because any question you think, well, that's a good question. Well, that's a random question. I'll ignore it. The good questions, you just add to the Yeah. To the this, I remember back when I was working in, in ICI, we weren't dealing in that way with, with investors, but no, we were needing to go to the main board with the annual budget. So we went through all of that same thinking. What on earth questions are they going to ask us this year? What charts do we need around? What little tables of information do we need around? How do we need to justify that number? Yeah, Richard, that sounds a lot like my experience when I was back in ICI. It wasn't dealing with investors per se, but we'd regularly, we put together, we we're in strategy mode and changing a lot of things in the business and we and budget times in particular. We'd be going to the main board asking for budgets to be approved, asking for investment sums to be approved. And we'd go through tables of figures, charts, graphs, trying to predict every question we get thrown at us. And there was always one. There was always a question you hadn't thought of the answer to. And you'd you'd have that moment saying, oh, yeah, got to go back to the office, got to think through the answer to that one, be better prepared next time. Yeah. And that that sort of thing, it really does. What tends to happen is whether it's a board meeting, whether it's an investor meeting, whether it's a staff meeting, you tend to work out over a period of time where those questions are going to come to and how you handle them. Yeah. So for me, when I got caught out, I tended to make not a joke of it, but I tended to see the funny side of it. Yeah. But always to say that the next, I only ever got caught out on that type of question once. So there's nothing wrong with not being able to answer a question for an investor, etc. It's how do you move on from that? A, how do you cope with it so that you maintain your credibility? But B, how do you move on from that? A, never to make that same mistake again, which is important because if you're making the same mistakes, then mm. you're not learning properly. But B, how to move on, 
maintain your credibility and still achieve the goals, whether it's the confirmation of a budget, whether it's the confirmation of a forecast, whether it's getting to the next stage of a transaction. Absolutely. So, Richard, we, we had you in the bingo nightclubs organisation at Mecca. What, what happened next? So then um, <laughs> another piece of luck. I, in those days, there was no internet. And I, like many accountants, would wander through the Sunday Times job pages. Yeah. And I saw a job advertised in the Bahamas for a CFO for a business that was retail, but they had a zoo, they had a property, they ran franchises for companies such as Marks and Spencer, Body Shop. They were negotiating a franchise with Wendy, which is the American uh, people. They had their own zoo, and it just looked absolutely fascinating. So uh, there you are, Sunday, miserable Sunday morning in the UK, and you've well, already got visions of yourself in, with, in, uh, with your shorts on on the beach. <laughs> so I sent, I sent my letter off, and it took ages. But I came home from work one night. I was married then, and we had a leak. It was winter. And there was a leak. And I got my next door neighbor to come and help me turn the water off and start cleaning up. And the phone rang. And at the other end of the phone, there was the uh, president of the Bahamian Company's PA saying the president's going to be in London next week and he would like to interview for the CFO job. And I remember putting the phone down and saying to my friend, if I get offered that job, I'm going to go. Yeah. And I did get offered the job and I went. And I think again that one of the one of the things that I think is quite important is is understanding that people in different places, from different backgrounds, in different situations, will often see things in a different way to you. Yeah. And that's quite important. And I think one of the benefits of working and living overseas is you work out that all these things that you learn in the East End of London are not as black and white as you once thought. Mm. So therefore, it introduces you, again, a soft skill to the fact that actually the world is a much greyer place than you think it is. And one of the problems I think happens with social media nowadays is that when everything becomes polarised, you're basically giving opinions almost like to the mirror. Yeah. Same opinion back as the opinion that you've given because you're in that part of the discussion. Yeah, that's it for me on social media. Everybody sort of gravitates towards people that are like them. And you're going to have violent arguments with people that violently agree with you. (laughs) Which actually is not good for anyone. No. Because most of life happens somewhere around the middle. Yeah. And life is based on compromise, understanding, and communication. Yeah. But working overseas, it gives you that, why do they think that? Or how have they, why have they done that? And so A, you get the cultural difference. B, you obviously get, you get this, I mean, we lived on the Atlantic, uh, you know, where we had our own pool. It didn't rain very much. It was fun. 
It allowed you to wander around South America and America because you were on its doorstep. Yeah. Against that, you were CFO. Again, when I joined, they, were in a, they had a short-term cash problem which needed to be resolved. They were also growing through the acquisition of these franchises. Wendy's was a fra- fantastic franchise. Marks and Spencer's was a fantastic franchise. Body Shop was a fantastic franchise because you had these expat community that basically, when at Christmas, for example, when the boats arrived with Marks and, and Spencer produce, everyone just rushed to the Marks and Spencer shop. Yeah. You get to a point, if you're lucky, that money is not as important as the experience. Mm. So when I was a kid, you know, we would have times where we had to go and stay at my aunt's because there was no heating or we didn't have any food. So money is the most important thing because it allows you to do basic things in life, be safe, have food, have water, have warmth. If you're lucky, you get to a point where the thing that's important to you, because it can be, is the experience. And therefore, it didn't matter what you charge the people from Marks and Spencer because Marks and Spencer's Christmas cake was more important than $25. Indeed. And so, therefore, you, you learn another lesson in life. It's different things matter to different people at different times. So that was, that was a, a great experience. You spent a lot of time with Americans because most of the supplier relationships were with the States. Miami was 25 minutes away on the plane. You got to know the local Bahamians. And it was an experience that no one can ever, it was more important than the money they paid you to live there. I've, so been, CF, I've been CFO of a zoo. Yeah, not uh, many people can say that. No one wanted you to make a profit at the zoo, but they didn't want it to lose money. They wanted yeah. it to be break even. Mm. So we did the, the whole cost review of the zoo. And they thought I just wanted to kill all their animals. <laughs> well, of course, <laughs> the, the, the CFOs always try and manage costs. So that, that's yeah. probably quite normal. But, but again, it was, you know, at the end of it, they were in a situation where they, where they swapped animals with different zoos. Mm. So they got more, you know, diverse animals. Everyone wants a Bohemian flamingo. So therefore, there was a market. Yeah. Against that, their own zoo became more interesting and diverse. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got the overseas experience and when you're now an established CFO. So, when did you take that next, Richard? So we came back for the uh, birth of my first daughter, and I joined uh, a telco. And then I think it was, again, working through the layers. Again, and with all these things, partly it's what you bring to the party. So I had a lot of skills uh, in, in a large corporate back in London, most of the finance people wouldn't have, even if they were more the small company skills. But in many ways, the small company environment can help with the commercial understanding of what's going on. Yeah. Lots of what you do in large corporates until you get to that level can be lost within the rest of the organization. Yeah, you, you see a little bit of a very big process. When Where in a small, small company, you see the whole process. And against that, the actions you take in a small company have a much bigger impact than they would do in the corresponding uh, larger 
larger corporate. So I did a number of jobs there and I wandered around, but always, luckily enough, in the right direction, upwards. And then eventually I became a CFO of a a billion pound or multi-billion pound unit. Mm. Now, these things give you exposure to large contracts, large, complicated, multinational contracts that cross borders, that cover different laws, different cultures, different time zones. And again, the basic skills are the skills that you've learned, either within previous jobs or your training or the audit practice. You're still developing how to manage conflict, how to manage complexity, how to help people through it, how to influence, how to take your team there. So all you're doing then is really you're building on the soft skills you were learning on the way up through the organization or organizations. But the impact you have is far greater. So therefore, the stress is more. So you need to be more sure about where you're going and your views. Mm. So, Richard, a lot of the things that you've done have been about managing some sort of change. What would you pass on to a mentee, for example, about managing a change situation? I would say a number of things. One, what is the change you're actually looking for? It needs to be measurable. It needs to be clear. It needs to be a common goal within the people who are telling you this is the change. I mean, that is very, very important. Time scale, what's in or out of scope, and the levers and the resources you're allowed to use to get you from A to B. So the more you can understand what you're being asked to do, the better you can communicate it to both the people who support you, your peers, and the people above you is key. Because a lot of change is not measurable. They're not really sure about what they want and why. Because as a CFO, you should be able to latch on to the corporate goals because they, the investors are the people that own your company. So lots of CFOs have you know, both good and bad relationships with CEOs. The more successful you are, I think, the better the relationship with the CEO. But again, he's not your customer. You two are part of a team taking a company from A to B. The people who determine whether you're ultimately successful or unsuccessful are the board of investors. Yeah. And once you realize that, and you can get your relationship not only with your CEO and your peers and your people, but with this group of investors who trust you, understand that you're trying to help them get to the place they want to be, help them understand what that place actually looks like. So therefore, there's a lot of communication at the beginning, and it's a lot of iteration to make sure that you're doing actually what these people want you to do. And the way that you're measuring it and the way you're counting it and how you're forecasting it, everyone is clear about. So I would say the number one rule is clarity of purpose, Mm. both theirs and yours. The next point is you need to surround yourself with people who like change. Again, there's different types of people. 
Some people thrive on it. Some people get stressed out about it. You want people that are going to embrace it. They're going to embrace the vision, but they're also going to love the journey. If every time you're moving something or taking a risk, they're hiding behind the sofa, then they're not your people. You want people who want you to be brave, but want to be brave with you and for you. So I think positive change is a mindset. It is almost the way people say, are you half empty? Are you half full? Now, change means you should be half full with the hope that what's going to be created is better than what you're leaving behind. Yeah. Because if you're not doing that, then why do it? Well, exactly. And then as you go through the journey, you're, you're going to be put in situations where you're not sure. But that's why you need the trust and the support of those next to you, underneath you, also above you. Because as I said earlier, life is not as black and white as we all like to think it is. In a change, Richard, not change can be good, but then within it, there are winners and there are losers. Not everybody's a winner. So what about that aspect and bringing those folk along? So in any change, I think you do two things. One, you work out, is it the best thing for the organisation? And if it isn't, you talk about it to make sure that you understand why the organisation wants to do this. You often get in situations where you don't agree with everything. But to be honest to yourself, I think you need to agree with most of it. Otherwise, why put yourself in a situation? The second part, which is almost more important, is how is this going to affect me? Now, people who say, oh, I only do what's best for the company, they're either missing something or they're lying. Mm. Everyone looks Everyone asks, everyone says, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? So again, part of that's down to what experience am I going to learn? If the change is successful, what opportunities am, am I going to be given? How much bonuses will I be given? Stock options? Because again, most individuals look at themselves and say, what is success for me? So for me, I would brought up in a, in a rough area in the East End. For me, I wanted to be at the top of the tree. So that for the finance function, they would come to me. I would look after them. I would show them the direction they should go in. But they did what I wanted once we talked about it. I also wanted to give my family a good life. Now, most CFO jobs take up a lot of time. And most of us will work from early in the morning to late at night in the week. You have customer meetings, supplier meetings, management team meetings, board meetings, etc. And And at the weekends, if something's going on, most of the weekends, I would always put aside some time to do emails. And if we were raising debt or trying to sell a company, then you'd often, once the kids went to bed, you'd often be be working. So the way you justify that is is basically money. So the kids go to a nice school. They've got nice things. You go on nice holidays. So what you're doing is you're sacrificing family time with nice things. So if I had a nine-to-five job, I wouldn't fly to Dubai or Miami with my kids and wander around all the things that you see on the adverts because I wouldn't be able to afford it. So therefore, you make this conscious decision of 
it's almost like, I think now they call it work-life balance. And I think you do that even before it was called work-life balance, but almost subconsciously. Yeah. And therefore, success to me was people saying, you're doing well. Well, that's a big house. Your kids are going to a nice school. And a lot of people get their self-esteem through their work. Now, that's, there's a danger in that itself in that you should always be more than your work. You should be you. And, you know, one of the things I've learned since I've, ret- you know, semi-retired is that when people ask me what to do, what I used to do, I say I used to be a CFO. And I'm fine with it because <laughs> hopefully I've got enough other, other attributes that people still like me. Yeah. For, for, for reasons other than the fact that I could do all this stuff. Yeah. So, Richard, after a long career and now being kind of semi retired, let's say, what's the one piece of advice that you'd be giving to a, a younger version of you? So, I would say, Enjoy it. I think happy people are more successful. And I think the reason for that is they don't see the work as work. They see it as an adventure, as a journey with a goal, however they define it at the end, to be reached. Now, you know, sometimes we never get to the goal, but we've had a good journey. Hmm. Sometimes we find a side road that we never knew we'd find and we wander off on another journey. There's no right or wrong and there's no real black or white to success or failure because there's so many variables involved when you come to make decisions about taking different roles or doing different things. But the happier people are more successful and when they look back, they look back and say, wow, that was tough, but I had a lot of fun, and I had a lot of fun. Brilliant. On that note, Richard, thank you very much for being the guest on this week's Grow CFO Show. Thank you.